<laughs> Confirmation the video is not going on today, but that's okay. The Lord has much greater things in store other than just an intro video. Amen? Amen? I want to recognize something in the room right now. I, I just kind of started to notice it this past week, but, um, you know, nobody has to raise their hands here, but I'm just going to make a guess that we're at that time of year where we're just feeling a little tired, are we not? Uh, we got a lot of things going on in our lives, a lot of preparation coming up with Thanksgiving and with Christmas, and I want to recognize that because uh, ultimately I am so excited to be here today and to be able to preach God's Word to each and every single one of you. And in order for us to, in some ways, lift up our spirits, I just want us to do something together right now. And I know many of you probably have done this before, but I'm going to say, God, God is good, and you're going to say, and all the time. So let's say it like we mean it one more time. God is good, and all the time. Amen to that. And I want to recognize one other thing. Eric, brother, I, I was thinking about you this past week because this kind of marks the anniversary of your father, Ed passing away this year, and I don't know if that's why you're here today, but I was thinking of you this week, and I'm really grateful that you're here today with us. And Yeah, and I've, I've thought of your father so often this past year, and I, I miss him, and I'm, I'm sure it's the same for each and every single one of you, but we are celebrating at his residency right now with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords along with your mother there, so I just wanted to recognize that real quick. Um, my name is Pastor Kevin, as I had mentioned earlier on in the service, and I've been taking the church, and we've been going together and journeying through the book of James, and it has been a wonderful time. And if you were here with us last week, uh, we talked about James chapter 4, verses 4 through 11, and we specifically talked about how we need to seek the God who passionately seeks us. Well, this week we're going to be in chapter 5, and in some some ways this will be the last message that I preach in the book of James, at least until the new year, and that is so that we can make way for Advent next season or next week, which I'm really excited for. Uh, but we're going to be in chapter 5 today, and we're going to be looking at some really, really powerful verses that if I'm to be honest with you, I'm in some ways reluctant to preach. I've said that a number of times as we've gone through the book of James, and the truth is, is that this is just a hard book to preach, right? There are just so many things that are in this book that in some ways cause us to wrestle with ourselves, to realize that oftentimes our faith and our deeds don't always match up. But yet God is calling us, especially within this season, to allow those things to happen, which is why we've titled this series Real Faith, because we believe that God is calling us to have real faith, real biblical faith. Amen? Amen. So let's pray one more time before we enter into God's Word and officially uh, start this message. So if you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, we thank you for this time where we get to, in some ways, um, come to a conclusion, although I have a feeling we're going to spend a couple more weeks after Advent to spend in James. Lord, we thank you for everything that we have been learning up until this point. I do pray for today's message, Father, because there's a number of things that in some ways James is calling, us, uh, calling out to, and we need to wrestle with it, Lord. 
We don't want to avoid the difficult things in Scriptures. We want to allow those things to comfort us, and, or confront us, better said, because, Lord, we believe that in doing that, Father, we grow in the process of sanctification. So, Lord, I do pray that you would give us ears to hear today and eyes to see the things that you are doing. We ask these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. And God's people said, Amen. All right. Amen. Well, in the early 1900s, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was this gentleman named William or Wellington Burt. And Wellington Burt was a very, very wealthy man. In fact, in America, he was considered one of the top eight wealthiest people in the country. He was right there with Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie as far as how wealthy and prominent this man was. And specifically, what brought him wealth was, he was, it was his business with lumber. He was a lumber baron, and he amassed at the end of his life somewhere in the neighborhood of $90 million, which if you adjust for inflation today, it meant that he would have been a billionaire in comparison to his time. His wealth would have probably been $1.3 billion in today's dollars. But what was interesting about Bert in particular was despite his great wealth, what was most interesting about him was not necessarily how he lived, but how he died. You see, despite being a prominent figure within the Michigan region of his day and taking public office and creating all of this wealth, he lived in great tension with his family. And a lot of those tensions specifically arose because of his greed, his desire to always have more and do whatever it takes to be able to amass a great fortune. A problem that we still see happening today and something that formed as a wedge between him and his family. But what was most interesting in his death was specifically his will that he wrote after he died. And in some ways, we remember him more for this than all of the other accomplishments in his life. Because you see, in his will, he wrote this down. He wrote that his wealth would not pass on to any family member after his last grandchild would die. And then after his last living grandchild would pass away, there would have to be a 21-year period before his fortune can pass on to his family. Pretty remarkable, if you ask me, right, to put something like that within your will. And in some ways, what I think that will was communicating to the world, or at least to his family members, is that he did not want any person that was in contact with him and his family to get a portion of what he had. So believe it or not, dying in the early 1900s, his will was not uh, fully realized until 2010. Could you believe that? I believe the time period from his death and finally when the, the, his will can, his, his estate could be settled was almost a hundred years because he was so bitter towards his family 
And he did not want any person in his family to be able to receive any portion of what he had. Greed is a powerful motivator in life, is it not? It causes many wedges to be formed, and, and in some ways, greed can motivate people to do all sorts of atrocious things. If you look through the pages of history, what you oftentimes see is many, many stories of greed. Well, I believe James is trying to, in some ways, confront the greed that he saw within his days. And let me tell you this much, he has red-hot words to say about it. So I encourage you that as you listen to this message, that you take the time to hear his words well. Because what I believe God wants to say today is not just a message for those who have a larger amount of wealth, but really a message for all of us to hear, to take warning of the effects of what greed can do to our lives. So if you have your Bibles, again, we're in James chapter 5, and I'm going to read from verse 1, and hopefully we'll make it all the way to verse 7 today. I know sometimes I have a bad reputation of getting past four verses, but I think I can do it today, so be praying for me. But James chapter 5, verse 1, I'm reading from the New International Version. It says this, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because the misery that is coming on you. I don't know about you, but reading that line alone is pretty difficult. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. You see, James has already taken the opportunity to a couple of times already kind of confront people with this issue of wealth of allowing wealth to be something that corrupts people. But unlike any other portion of the entire book of James, James takes his strongest stance right here. It's as if he's taking a stick and and jamming it into the ground in order for people's attention to be caught. And unlike any other passage that we see within the epistles, James right here is speaking almost as if he is an Old Testament prophet. Doesn't he sound like that? In fact, the words that he uses here in the Greek, klaio and oladzo, are in fact words that he's using to to say weep and wail or weep and howl. And those words in particular were often used exclusively by the prophets in the Old Testament to pronounce judgment on the people before the day of the Lord was to come. So we need to take note of what he is saying because this stands in contrast to almost every single other thing that James has brought up to this point. You think he's serious about what he's going to say next? I'd say so. 
So James, standing as a prophet and almost sounding like Isaiah when Isaiah said, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Or Amos saying, In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, the songs in the temples will turn to wailing. He's letting people know that what he has to say next is incredibly important. That he takes big issues with greed with this issue of wealth. But why? What is James really upset about? Is it wrong to be wealthy? Is it wrong to be rich that he seems to target this demographic of people so strongly? You see, I think there's overall consensus that being wealthy is not wrong, but yet You know, when we think about it, we understand that oftentimes wealth can lead to a whole host of different issues. If we search our hearts, we know that deep down inside, it'd be nice to have a little bit extra in our bank accounts, a little bit fuller wallets, right? I know I think about that sometimes, And I'm sure you do too, because we oftentimes associate having wealth, having financial prosperity with success, with being able to do more, enjoy more, be free to have more. But yet, what oftentimes can come with wealth is greed, our inability to see how Our desire to have more can come at the expense of other people. Which is why in verse 2, he specifically says that your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and your silver are corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat flesh like fire. You see, in the ancient world of that day, the ways to kind of explain and talk about wealth were specifically the articles of clothing that you possessed or wore and gold and silver. That was kind of the pinnacle of wealth in that day. So if I were to ask you what is the pinnacle of wealth in our day, we would probably think about different things. Maybe we would think about having a large home or having a timeshare at a special location, or some sort of yacht. But maybe you're saying, well, Pastor Kevin, I lived in a landlocked state. I don't have a yacht. How does this apply to me? (laughs) Let me just ask you really quick. So it's just kind of curious. Does anybody have any uh, dollar bills in, in their wallets that they can help me to use as an illustration here? Um, just kind of curious, if you have, a, anybody have a five? Uh, and, okay, so we got a one over here. Anybody, anyone have a bigger uh, uh, denomination, a note denomination than a dollar bill? Okay, what do you got? What do you got there? Okay, he's got a 20. That's pretty good. So anybody can beat a 20 yet? Oh, a 50. Wow. I'm sorry, I'm going over there. <laughs> so if I were to, and I could, I could take this? Ah, you caught on to what I was going to do. All right. Well, 
obviously it's a little easier for me to probably take this from somebody than it is to take this. Notice that at least Jessica, when she gave me the dollar bill, she didn't say, hey, can, I make sure, can you make sure to give that back to me? But what did Eric do when he gave me the, his, his $50 note? He said, hey, can you make sure to give that back to me? Why? I mean, these are essentially made out of the same material, a combination of linen and other things to create these notes. But the value that we put on it has to do with the number that is on this dollar bill, right? And we give value to this, we give favor to this, and we all rather have this than that, do we not? Because you see, we understand that money can afford us I'll make sure I give you the right one back. <laughs> we, we understand that money affords us the opportunity to be able to, hopefully, possess what we want and use it for the things that we desire. So the reality is, is that even though James is trying to strongly speak against people with wealth, this concept of clothes, gold, and silver... The truth is, is that whether you consider yourself lower on the socioeconomic income scale or higher on the socioeconomic income scale, we can all deal with issues of greed. Can we not? Because you see, greed can come in many different forms. It might not be the biggest thing out there that we can think of, of like having a mansion or having a yacht. It could be all sorts of different kinds of things. So what are some common modern day ways that we try to, in some ways, find our wealth? I think for some of us, it can be a material possession. For others of us, it could be our appearance. It could be the car that we drive. It could be what we have in our bank account. It could be our relationships. It could be the sports that we root for as far as a team. It could be all sorts of different things. Because you see, I believe that greed is oftentimes a form of idolatry. You know, when I say the word idolatry, for whatever reason, that word has in some ways lost some of its meaning in our day. And when we hear that word of idolatry, we typically think of a primitive group of people all dancing around some sort of golden image, right? But really, idolatry is something that we still struggle and deal with today, which is why God was so strong in pointing it out and why it is one of the Ten Commandments. You see, I believe a biblical definition of idolatry is simply worshiping something or someone other than God as if it were God. See, Biblical idolatry is worshiping something or someone other than God as if it were God. Now, maybe you're not going around and creating shrines in your home of the things that you possess, but ask yourself this. Are there things in your life that you put ahead of the Lord? 
ahead of the responsibilities that you have been given. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, if you love anything better than God, you are idolaters. If there is anything you would not give up for God, it is your idol. Did you hear that? If there is anything that you seek with greater fervor than you seek the glory of God, that is your idol. And conversion means a turning from every what? Idol. Now, I did have that quote up in there, but I guess it didn't get up on the screen, so sorry about asking you that last question. <laughs> See, Jesus knew this well in Matthew 6, 21, as we read during our Scripture reading time when He said, For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. He said that during the Sermon on the Mount, and it's so important for us to be able to understand this. Yes, James is specifically targeting people that are in this wealthy, prominent position, but the reality is, is that all of us can struggle with this. All of us can uh, could allow ourselves to be possessed by certain things that we end up putting above the Lord and above what God is calling us to steward in this life. Let me break this down a little bit more. Are there things in my life that I put first above God? You see, I've confessed this before to you guys, and I feel like I'm finally in some ways getting better at this, but for those of you that might know me more personally, you might know that one of my biggest struggles throughout my life has been the fear of man. Or in other ways of putting it, I am a people pleaser. I am someone that in some ways is, 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 wants other people to like me, and because of that, I sometimes will set aside the things that I know to be right because I end up being ruled by this desire to be liked. And there have been moments in my life where I have allowed that to become an idol, my desire to be liked, my desire to be come across as a person that is likable. And even though that is a, a fear of mine, it's an idol of mine because in some ways I've allowed God to get second seat, if you will, when I decide to allow a person to take precedence over my life versus my Lord and Savior. That's not okay. It's not okay for me to do that. I need to make sure that my priorities are in right check, that I'm putting God first, and then my family coming second, and then after that, somewhere along the way, the church. And that's not because the church doesn't matter, but because in order for me to be a healthy individual, I need to make sure that those priorities in life are matching up well so that I can be faithful in the best possible way to each and every single one of those priorities. Because you see, when I honor God first, guess what? I get to honor everything else in the proper way. 
So let me ask you this question. What is your modern-day equivalent of an idol or something in your life that you cause to put above the Lord or above others or above whatever responsibilities you know that God has given you? Because the truth is, is I know each and every single one of us in this room can think of something whether past or present, that we have struggled with. And the truth is, is that in James's day, these people that were landowners or landlords were harming others through their desire to have more. But in reality, that really hasn't gone away, Right? I mean, we still see this playing out every single day of our lives. And what is oftentimes so tragic about this is because it is is that we don't always see how blessed we are. And sometimes in the middle of our blessings, we can oftentimes use those blessings as a way to hurt other people. So in the case of James, these people that were wealthy and they were rich, they were hurting other people through their blessings. Think about that. You're in a very fortunate situation if the Lord has allowed you to be someone that can employ other people or, 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 or let's say could allow other people to live on your land and doing things like that. If that is your situation, I would say that you are incredibly blessed. But I would also say that don't let your blessings separate you from God. Don't let your blessings separate you from God, which is one of my points for today. And today I decided on two of them. And the reason why I say this is because sometimes the blessings that we have can also become an idol to us. Just a few weeks ago in October, I uh, talked about the story of the rich young ruler. And if you don't remember that story, I think it fits well again right here. What ends up happening? Well, Jesus is, is going about in his ministry when a person runs up to Jesus and asks him what he must do to inherit the kingdom kingdom of God, what he must do that is to inherit eternal life. And Jesus replies to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. And of course, what we know from this story, from those that have read it before, is the man becomes totally dejected from that circumstance because he ponders about everything that he has. You see, it's a scary thing when the blessings of God, when the good things of God in our lives take so much prominence in our lives that it ends up separating us from the Lord. You know what's a hard prayer that I think is worth praying is, Father, take away anything from my life that keeps me from loving you more. And if you pray that prayer, and there's a lot of hesitation in praying that prayer, which I think is normal, then I'd encourage you to pray a prayer like that and think about what first comes up. And consider if that blessing in your life has become an idol. 
And if it has, I encourage you today, as this first point says, to not let that blessing separate you from God. Amen? You see, I want every single person in this church to be blessed in more ways than one. But we can't allow those blessings to take such a rule over our lives that we forget the person who blessed us. I encourage you to think about your treasures, to ask, what is it that you treasure? In James 5, verse 5, he continues here and he says that you, again, still kind of targeting these wealthy people, he says that you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. And what James is doing here is in some ways he's echoing the words of Christ from Luke. I mean, he almost sounds like a mirror image of what Jesus was saying in, in the Gospel of Luke. And one of the things that I, I, I appreciate about this text and one of the things that allows me to be thankful is that even though the Lord is speaking harsh words to a certain group of people, the reason why He's doing that is why. Because He's not just a God of love, but He's a God of justice. And, and I would say that you can't have love without justice. Amen? You need the justice because the justice allows you to love. If you see something that is un, unjust in this world, unjust in this world, and you don't care to take notice of it, then do you really love that person? If you see a great injustice in this world and and you don't even care to to pray to sympathize to think about how you could do better then do you really love love leads us to caring for justice it leads us to wanting there us to be able to fight for the causes that are that are just that the lord is calling us to god hears the cries of those people who have been neglected and abused by this group of people. And he hears their cries. And the reason why I believe James is so, speaking so strongly is because the Holy Spirit is allowing him to be used in this moment to offer a rebuke to these abusers of other men and women. God hears their cries and he acts. And I appreciate that so much because I believe that what God is calling the people to is to honor Him through the resources that they have been given. You know, Advent season is right around the corner. It's next week. And one of the most beautiful things that we're going to be talking about in Advent, which the word Adventus is, is where we get Advent from, and it's Latin for coming, right? And it's the fact that Jesus has come. But we're not just celebrating the fact that Jesus has come, we're celebrating what fact as well. And this is what the early church did when they celebrated Advent. They celebrated the fact that Jesus has come, but also that Jesus is what? Coming again. But in Jesus' 
coming, his first coming into this world, what was that coming representative of? It was representative of a God who deeply loved us enough to live generously and give us himself. Think about that. So, of course, God would be offended over a situation where somebody is, is, is allowing their blessings to hurt other people. Because God, being the most richly blessed person in this world, did not withhold any of those blessings from us. And when you look at the life of Jesus, church, I encourage you to look at a life of radical generosity. Jesus was radical in his generosity. Sometimes I think we take this for granted because we become so familiar with the Christian message, with understanding that Jesus died and rose from the grave, that in some ways we forget the fact that he didn't have to do that. God could have left us in our sin, he could have left us in our despair. He did not have to interact, but because He is a good God, because He is the Almighty, living God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth, God decides to bestow His great love and demonstrate His great love on us, that while we were still sinners, what did Christ do? He died for us. So I think one of the reasons why James speaks so harshly to this wealthy group of people is because in some ways this wealthy group of people is speaking in direct contrast to what the gospel is supposed to represent. And that is this beautiful message of radical generosity. Church, I want you to know that I think every single person, whether you believe it or not, whether you see it or not, everybody in this room is blessed in some ways. Whether it's just that you're alive, whether it's that you claim to the name of Christ, that is the greatest blessing you could ever receive, the fact that you have been forgiven, that you have been redeemed. You are blessed. And I believe that God wants you to use your resources, to use your blessings to honor Him and to make His name known in this earth. Francis Assisi, one of the gentlemen that we can thank for the nativity scene and really uh, bringing back this idea of, of a child in a manger, he says this, he says, for it is in giving that we receive. Have you ever heard of that before? Well, it comes from him. This leads me to my second and final point for today. Use your resources to honor God. Use your resources to honor God. The truest form of wealth is found in the Lord. It comes from living for Him because though, it is, it, though in all other areas of our lives we might feel a crushing weight, 
The truth is, is that when we live for God, we in some ways tie ourselves to the beautiful message of His radical generosity. I want to be tied to that. And I believe everybody in this room has some resources that they can use for God. And don't worry, I'm not going to pass around the offering bucket right at this time. That's not the point. The point is, is that we all have time, we all have treasures, we all have talent. We have one of those three things that we can regularly give to the kingdom of God to others, to people that God allows us to be influences of or influences for. You see, I believe that one of the beauties of the church is is that God has created each of us unique and different. Some of us like working with our hands. Some of us like talking too much. Some of us like doing all sorts of different things. And God has put that ability in you. And here's the thing. There are people in your lives that I can't reach. That Phil can't reach. But that you can. Through the gifts and the talents and the time and the resources that you have been given. And I believe that God wants you to use those things to make His name known, to make Him famous in this place. To not be the kind of person that crushes others with their blessing, but instead uses those blessings to radically show the beauty of who God is. So do you have time to give? Do you have treasures? Do you have talents? Are there any elevator operators in the room that we don't know about? (laughs) Now would be a good time to make that known. (laughs) Whatever you have, use it onto the Lord. I came across this story of how I think radical generosity and being able to use what wealth you do have, how it can make a difference. And it's a story from India. There's a region there, the Mizoram area of, of India, and I'm probably mispronouncing that, and, I for, uh, and I'm sorry for anybody that might know that region better than I. Well, in the early 1900s, Christianity came into this region, and for the most part, this whole entire region was almost untouched for the Lord. And very early on, they realized that they had a need to be able to not just be uh, 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 an area that would receive blessings, but an area that would give blessings. And this area was incredibly poor. But once the gospel came in, there was a small group of people that felt it in their hearts that they need to work hard to make Jesus known. But the challenge that they faced was is they just didn't have much to give. So it was the idea of a small group of people that instead of trying to give a specific dollar amount, they would give what they did have. And what they always felt like they did have is a handful of rice. So a ministry started called Bafatham, which was specifically a translation that means a handful. 
full of rice. And that ministry is still going on today. And what they challenged their people to do in the churches is, is during every single meal that they were going to have some rice, that they would just take a little tiny handful of rice and put it in a can. Well, in the first year of doing this ministry, they raised, after a whole entire year of doing this ministry, they raised the equivalent of $1.50 U.S. in their time. Not much. But this ministry continued, and they continued to give generously to the missions work and to the spreading of the gospel in their area, to planting churches. And this, these numbers continued to increase and increase and increase to now where over 90% of the people in that area now consider themselves Christian. So they literally turned those numbers upside down, and they've planted hundreds of churches. And in this region, I think there's around 900,000 people. The overwhelming majority of them claim faith in Christ. And just recently, just through that little scoop of rice ministry, they raised $1.5 million dollars still being one of the poorest areas in their region to the planting efforts, the church planting efforts and sending efforts. What in your life is the equivalent of a handful of rice that you can strategically give back to the work of God? And let me be clear, I'm not trying to preach a message of just filling up our own offering plates. I'm thankful for those that give to this church, and I encourage you to continue to do that because this church represents a lighthouse in our community. But what I'm more so trying to talk about are what are the ways that you can create a handful of rice out of your life in order to bless others with the love of Jesus. You know, this week we have a unique and great opportunity to do what? To celebrate Thanksgiving to cut some turkey, and to eat some good food. And I'm sure many of you face a common problem of just feeling, what, stuffed at the end of the day, which tells you what, you probably have enough to share with somebody else. So maybe this week, what God is calling you to do is to invite one more individual to your Thanksgiving dinner that you might not know if they have a place to go or not. Because here's the thing, People might have the resources to enjoy a Thanksgiving meal, but they don't always have the invitation to do it in good company. Maybe this week God is calling you to think of an individual that you might know that might not have a seat at a table, and maybe he's calling you to invite them to your table. Maybe it's something else. Maybe you know of somebody that has a need in their life that you are uniquely qualified to be able to address that need. Whatever it is, I want to encourage you, especially within this next week, but in this Christmas season especially, to think of what is one way that you can use what you have been given, the blessings that you have, to be able to honor God with those resources. Amen? I pray that you take that seriously and that you think of something. Let's pray.